the night. I am. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to a new episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So, Will, how are you this evening? Matt, 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 Maddie, 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 Lasers. I am doing so well. I am so happy. I'm so excited. You know, last week I had kind of a down week. You know, I had that had that bad medical news, but we put out the call on social media, and I'd like tonight to thank the family of Mildred Westervelt, 89 year old from Jumping Branch, West Virginia. Her family saw my call for a new butthole. They got in touch with me and I am the proud owner of, you know, it's, it's not mint, you know, Mildred was, was on up in there, but uh, it's, it's, it's better. It's better. And I feel great. I've, I've taken it out for a couple of test drives and it's, it's working well and I'm excited and I'm happy and I'm just ready to go. Well, I'm glad to hear that because we've got three more stories tonight and Tonight, we're doing our first villain-centric episode. And when you Ooh. think of Batman and you think of villains, who else is there to start with but the Joker? Dum, dum, dum. We've been loving the ongoing Joker series that's running right now from James Tinian. I, I've discovered it is Tinian. So James Tinian and Guillaume March. And the Joker is the seminal Batman villain. This is the guy who's been in more movies, more episodes of TV shows, and probably more comics than pretty much any other Batman villain. And we're starting with three single-issue Joker stories. We're not hitting Killing Joke or some of those bigger, epic Joker stories. I wanted to start out with something a little smaller this time, but not necessarily smaller in their heft and their material, just smaller in their length. Because we, we've got some episodes coming up with some bigger stories. So this week, I thought we would stick with something, you know, get through in a sitting. At least two of the three. One of them has some more heft to it in that way, too. But we'll get there. Well, let's be clear. I've not been doing any sitting this week. You know, I'm, I'm doing this show standing up. But I, I was able to get through these, these reads, certainly. Great. So let's start off with... An earlier Joker story, but not too early, just the earliest of these. And that's the Joker's five-way revenge. This is from Batman volume one, number 251. The writer is Denny O'Neill. The art and all of the art is credited to Neil Adams. There's no separate inker, colorist, or letterer listed. I have to imagine there's at least one of those in there, but the vagaries of comics credits before the 80s leaves that up to debate. The editor on this one is Julia Schwartz, and the cover date is September of 1973. This issue is the story of the Joker having once again escaped from, at this point, the mental institution. Arkham hasn't been introduced as Arkham yet, and exacting his revenge on five members of his gang because somebody sold him out to the cops last time. And as opposed to figuring out which one of them did it and killing just that one, he just decides, you know, better to kill them all. And kill, Batman, them all. <laughs> kill them all, let God sort them out. Yeah. Uh, and Batman does his best to stop this and it doesn't go well for bats and 
till the end. This is another O'Neill Adams joint. We discussed their first story, The Secrets of the Waiting Graves, in the previous episode. This one's three years later and is much more them at the zenith of their Batman run. This is the first Joker story in many years that features a homicidal Joker. This is the Joker coming out of the Cesar Romero wacky Silver Age Joker and back to the truly mad and dangerously homicidal Joker. This is your first time with this one, Will? Absolutely. And I was I was really impressed in that this clearly fits on an evolutionary timeline. We still have some of the zaniness. We still have the over-reliance on the internal monologue, internal narrative balloons. There is less of a willingness to just let the art tell the story alone. But you had some fascinating layouts in this issue. And you had some really serious content. This is straight up Joker murdering folks. And I thought you even had some serious beats within the story. I loved where Batman goes to the uh, to this retired boxer. And they basically play this game of, of uh, like, you know, calling your own fouls out on the, uh, the, the court. And it's this, this macho game of, Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pretend to be your your sparring partner, and I or your hold the heavy bag for you. And I understand that you're hitting me, and uh, yeah, but I'm not going to sell it. And it's just it's a it's fascinating little interplay for a guy who's you know attempting to you know go straight, and then he's dead in the next page. Uh, but I thought this was for the era a really adult story, and I I, I really enjoyed it. This is a classic. This is probably my favorite single issue of those O'Neill Adams pairings. There's another great Two-Face one-off. The original Rachel Ghoul as an arc is probably stronger, but this as a single issue has so many great visual beats, so many great little character moments for both Batman and the Joker. It does absolutely have some Silver Age goofiness to it and just some silver age moments i mean at one point batman calls jim gordon sir and no batman and gordon from the late 70s early 80s onward at no point in their relationship are they a sir sort of relationship but it's still very much batman and joker at a point where we will logically see them as the same characters we know now, or Batman, the Joker, as we'll get into with some of the other stories, is a constantly evolving figure. But this is a version of the Joker that is very recognizable. What year was that again? Uh, This is 73. 73, yeah. We could take a pass at rewriting this and just tweak it just a little bit. Don't even need to touch the art. And I think we could put this out as you know, something from the 80s or maybe even the 90s in terms of the the story you see there on the page. Perhaps the shark business is a little bit more zany, but even in how the story is told on the page, it's a very modern sort of sequential storytelling 
again, aside from all of the internal monologuing, I, I don't know why they, they just didn't think we don't need Batman to narrate this. He's trying to wrestle a shark with a chain. He could just do that and we could we could watch. Which is such a cool visual moment and a visual moment that is actually taken and used in Batman the Animated Series. There's the Laughing Fish episode, which is an adaptation of another classic Joker story. But they add a bit at the end that puts Bullock in the place of the Joker's henchman here with at the aquarium and the Joker pushing Bullock into the shark tank with Bruce that combines these two classic Joker comics into one story. That's pretty neat. You're absolutely right. This story does read a little more clunkily than something from now, but that, as you said, is the times and it's still cleaner than secrets of the waiting graves was. It still reads a little more smoothly than that. And it'll be interesting because O'Neill keeps writing Batman on and off through the late 90s, the mid to late 90s. There are still new Denny O'Neill Batman stories. So it'll be curious to go back and see some of those stories from the later 80s into the 90s to see how his style as a writer evolves. Because even if the narration's a bit off, he knows Batman. I mean, this is this is the guy who brought Batman back to something more akin to the original conception of the character without taking him all the way back to that sort of clunky homicidal Batman of those early Finger and Kane stories, but is the Dark Knight. A modernization of the Dark Knight is a creation of O'Neill and Adams. You wouldn't have gotten Miller's stuff if O'Neill and Adams hadn't come along. I don't think you would have gotten Englehart and Rogers if O'Neill and Adams hadn't come along first. I like that you did call out the boxing. I'm never sure if it's O'Neill or Adams who's the big boxing guy or possibly both of them because they also were the creative team on the legendary Superman versus Muhammad Ali comic. So I got to imagine one of the two of them was big into boxing, which as someone who appreciates the sweet science, I appreciate it as well. Fun fact for everyone who I'm sure really doesn't care, but I always like mentioning this story. They do care. They absolutely care. Uh, my grandfather was the first professional Jewish heavyweight boxer in America. No fucking way. He fought Joe Lewis. He got the living hell beaten out of him <laughs> by Joe Lewis. But who didn't? So you can still find Roy Laser fought Joe Lewis. Ended you know, his career with a record in his favor with more knockouts than being knocked out. Hey, that's all we can hope for at the end of the day, right? Yep. Each of these henchmen that the Joker is picking off is killed in a different way. This isn't just the Joker, you know, walking around shooting people. And a lot of them are somewhere in between a quirky Silver Age death and something more brutal and modern. It's a nice touch that the Joker isn't just shooting a guy. The poisoned water for the boxer, the exploding cigar for the one guy is very much a wacky Silver Age bit, an exploding cigar, 
but it's packed with nitroglycerin. And it's got that twist on it, too. Like, the guy's like, ah, I bet this is an exploding cigar, right? Ah, it's, it's going to be a cute gag, see? And then he gets blowed up. And then the next guy, you don't really see what he does, but somehow the Joker winds up hanging him, which is like, ooh, that's A, not a good way to go, and B, requires a degree of strength for you to hang someone over not a short, not a particularly long period of time because Batman's unconscious, but he's not out for long. So uh, so my old headcanon there is that we did, uh, we did some fucked up Hannibal Lecter shit and uh, Joker talked him into hanging himself. Dark. Yeah, but that could absolutely make sense because he is the freaking Joker and he's a bad, bad man. The sequence with that guy before Joker gets to him, Batman's chasing him and he's running away from Batman because he mugged someone and he thinks Batman's <laughs> after him for that. And it's just great. It's like, oh, okay. These guys aren't reformed. These are bad guys. But Batman, A, is still trying to help them. But they're dumb enough to be like, yeah, I got to get out of here. It's a bat. Yeah, yeah. Importantly, they're bad guys and dumb bad guys. Yes, very dumb bad guys. Dumb enough that the guy's like, I'm going to run through the docks. I know these like the back of my hand. There's no way Batman can find me. And he pops out of his little hidey hole and it's like, oh, wait, no, no. There's Batman. Because if there's one person who knows Gotham better than you, random joker goon it's batman i did like the subtle reference and and maybe this is this pops up more in um in the joker stories but i like the subtle reference in both this story and the batman story we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about later the nod to um what's the saint's name saint genesius yes references in both of those stories while I think that, yes, these are both writers who would make that reference, I'm kind of thinking that that later story is not just referencing the saint, but is referencing this story. Wouldn't surprise me. Doesn't make sense. Although these, these weren't costumed goons. True. That is very true. Speaking of references, there's one that, again, I have to imagine it's a reference. When Batman is talking about criminals, he says that Sooner or later, they all wind up in the prison, the gutter, or the grave, which is the opening to the classic Philip Marlowe radio show. He says that, you know, the path of crime always leads to the prison, the gutter, or the grave. I was like, huh. Yeah, I'm a big fan of old-time radio, and I've heard that opening many times. Well, I guess Denny O'Neill liked Philip Marlowe, too. Yeah, that can't be coincidence. No, it's it's the exact same phrase. It's got to be. We do get a little bit of detecting in here as well with Batman identifying a clue, even though it takes him a little while to place it. But he has now been hit multiple times on the head in this story in a short span of time. So nah, these goons are playing my head like the bongo drum. See, (laughs) we do get I won't say it's the first reference to this in Batman's history, but it's the first one that jumps to my mind of the sort of nature of Batman and Joker as this pair that exists together that one sort of needs the other or one exists because of the other it's something that's been explored a lot in modern batman stories but there's a couple of times where the joker specifically makes reference to them as as him needing batman because otherwise where's the fun in it 
if God didn't have the devil, he'd just kill himself. Yes. That final sequence, the final clown, or fi- not final clown, the final goon, which is a whole sequence at an aquarium, is a big, elaborate set piece. And Adams goes wild with the art there. And it's so cool. From the first moment when Batman enters and the Joker appears. The first time you see him in that sequence is in the mouth of a f- shark jaw fossil. Like he's behind it, and he's his head is spotlighted inside those jaws. To the fight in the tank with a chained Batman fighting the shark while trying to save the goon who the Joker swore that he would let go. And of course he doesn't. He pushes him in anyway. Because why, why would you trust Joker ever? Batman's a little too trusting in this story. Like he walks into the one guy's apartment in front of him just so he can cold cock him. He, he had to get his toothbrush. Yeah, he had to get his toothbrush. and the splash page on page 22 of batman charging across the beach oh that was good it's iconic that is one of those pages that you'll see reprinted as pinups and posters and as an iconic batman image it's gorgeous i think though we're gonna have to check the science on this one the the joker toxin i will accept the I don't know, anything else I'll accept. But the idea that you can swing a wheelchair underwater and break the side of a tank, I don't think those physics work. Yeah, there are two bits in there that the science does not work on. That one jumped to my mind immediately. It's like, Batman's strong, but he's not Aquaman. He does not have sea-strengthened limbs. I don't think he could pull that one off. The other thing that I had to check it, but I was like, yeah, that doesn't seem right. Batman specifically says that the shark is attracted to the other guy who's been pushed into the tank because he's wearing a red vest. Mm. Sharks are colorblind. They don't have color receptors. But for a quirky early Bronze Age Batman story, I'm willing to take the the science in that bit as my gimme in this one, because everything else in this story is really cool. And there's a bit of rule of cool to that, the the wheelchair thing. It's a, and we'll see another moment, the master planner story, that legendary Spider-Man story was pushing the machinery off of himself because he, he needs to dig deep. This is Batman digging deep to stop the Joker and to save an innocent life. And so innocent ish, innocent ish, more innocent than the later story than here, because, yeah, this guy is is not terribly innocent. I mean, if you've worked for the Joker, oh, you've definitely made some poor life choices. But, you know, he was just a forger. Eh, That's just that's just paper, you know? Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. This is the guy who would have arranged those patents for Joker fish. This guy isn't. (laughs) This guy isn't out there shooting people and laughing about it. So I think we've we've come around on this one. Do you have anything you want to add before we go to the list? Oh, nope. Okay, so, Will, you think it's time? Ah, it'd be time to put it on the board. We're definitely in the top half on this one. The question becomes, where do we feel about this 
in relation to let's start with Dark Knight Returns and Beautiful People, which are four and five. Whoa, whoa, that's that's pretty high. That's pretty high. It is pretty Um, high, but this is an iconic Joker story. This is the story that reestablishes the Joker as a true threat versus a Silver Age goof. We wouldn't get so many iconic Joker stories without this as the foundation upon which they all are built. You make a fair point. And I think we're just, we're really bullish on beautiful people and brave in the bold 20, because I think we're, we were just in really good moods when we read those books. And that's not to say that they're bad, but they are, they are really high up there just for just kind of random books that we enjoyed. So my thought process started with, we're going to put this above secret of the waiting graves. Yes, absolutely. This is a better story than our previous O'Neill and Adams. It's also definitely higher. The Doomsday Book is big and fun, but it's not an important book. And while important doesn't necessarily mean great, this is compact. This tells you a solid single story in 24 pages without any tangents and doomsday book while fun is basically one big tangent which is very silly is silly exactly so i think this is stronger i also think as much fun as brave and the bold 20 is again it's two fun little bonbons this isn't that's not a meal and it's up where it is because it tells some good Batman stories. It gets you some good characters, some good relationships between Batman and another hero. But this is foundational to Batman's relationship to the Joker, who is a central character in the Batman mythos. All right. So I think we're starting to see some some separation here in terms of our thinking. The very top of our list is foundational critical reads. Just under that tier We've got stuff that is good, but not necessarily important. I would be okay with putting this at kind of at the bottom because it's still in that evolutionary scale. I mean, we're still kind of like, uh, we're still kind of like monkey men instead of like fully formed men. Our, Our man, I apologize, humans. I would be okay slotting this bad boy in at five. You, you sold me. Yeah, I think... Dark Knight remains a critical text, so I can accept Dark Knight above this. But again, Beautiful People is a fun one-off, but it's not a book that you're going to go back and you're going to reread over and over again. I've read Beautiful People two, three times. I've read Joker's Five-Way Revenge a bunch, and I always appreciate what it does. So that means our new number five is the Joker's five-way revenge from Batman volume one, number 251. Our next story is from a little bit later. We're about 17 years later, as a matter of fact. This is A Clash of Symbols from Detective Comics volume one, number 617. The writer is Alan Grant. Pencils by Norm Brayfogle, inks by Steve Mitchell, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Todd Klein, editors are Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. 
Cover date on this one is July of 1990. In this one, Batman, while attempting to find the Joker, runs across a fortune teller who is being robbed. He agrees to have his cards read, and it causes him to flash back to an earlier confrontation with the Joker. Grant and Bray Fogel, who worked on this, are another of those iconic 80s, 90s bat teams. They did a run on Detective. The, this is towards the latter end of that run before going on to Batman for a little bit and then getting their own book, Shadow of the Bat, where they were on it together for about a year's worth of stories before Bray Fogel stepped away and Grant continued writing for some time. This is the middle-ish chapter of the Joker's first story after a death in the family where he murdered Jason Todd. The Joker, quote unquote, dies or seems to die at the end of that story and pops up again in Batman 450. This story sort of slots in between the pages or in between Batman 450 and 451, that two-part Joker story, but is a completely standalone story on its own. So I didn't group it with 450 and 451 as part of a story. We've seen Bray Fogel before in episode three, where he was the artist on Batman Holy Terror. What, what are your feelings on this one, Will? So there are two moments, one big one, one small one that feel totally out of place, that feel wrong, that do not sit with me well as a Batman reader. The first is that Batman is the skeptic. Batman is grounded in reality, even as he is a giant vigilante who dresses as a bat. I do not believe in his mythos, in his canon, he would sit down with a fortune teller and say, sure, help me find a Joker. I just, I don't believe it. It doesn't, it doesn't sit right with me. So I did not like the framing uh, of this story, especially there was just such a, just a pitiful payoff of the whole fortune telling angle, you know, at the end. Second, we had a little bit of, uh, of a Scotsman uh, showing himself when Joker refers to rednecks. It's, it's not the American usage of the word. <laughs> like he says, um, I got to find it because it was so, it was so off. You know, Batman says, it's over, Joker. You're going back to Arkham. You rednecks never learn. The Joker always comes up trumps. And that just, that's, that's so obviously someone who's not, not an American writing that line because it, it doesn't make any sense. So I didn't like that. I didn't like DC editorial not fixing that. And I'm just kind of down on this story generally. As soon as you bring in the kind of the fortune telling aspect, you have lost me. And especially as it's a flashback, I just, ugh. This is a story that I have a personal strong memory of, as it's one of the first Joker stories I ever read, which is kind of why it's stuck in my head. But I knew this was not a, th this one wasn't up there with Five Way Revenge, but I wanted a fun little, uh, a quick little Joker story. So I'm curious, and this is a tangent, but it's a tangent that we were going to get to at some point or another. So it's, it's good to discuss it now. You mentioned Batman as the skeptic. Where does that line fall? Because Batman exists in a world where he has met 
the angel of vengeance. He has met demons from hell. He had a teenage flirtation with a magician who says things backwards and they just happen. So he has to, in some way, believe in the supernatural because otherwise he's denying his senses. It's the thing that always bugged me about Mr. Terrific, who's a character I generally really like. This is a guy who's the third smartest man in the DC universe who is on a team with the Spectre, but is an avowed atheist. To not believe in the divine when you're in a world where the divine has an active hand is curious. So I I think this is the answer that makes sense to me. Batman would believe in something if he had proof of its effectiveness, if he had proof of its reality. If he can see magic, he's not going to deny magic. Like even even a skeptic, you know, when, when presented with evidence, when presented with proof, Okay. Yeah. I I believe that it has been verified. You know, your hypothesis has been tested. I guess magic is real now. Okay. Let's do it. I don't think he would go to a fortune teller on the off chance. She might be legit. Like he would say, how many criminals have you apprehended? Uh, How many lottery numbers have you predicted? Oh, okay. Yes, please help me find the Joker. Don't, you know, this is not a waste of my time. So to me, that's the line. Like if he, if he has observed a phenomena in his universe and has accepted that to be how that universe works, then it is so. In many ways, just like the scientific method, like if it is verifiable and repeatable, then it's reality. That is the correct answer. (laughs) <laughs> I, I rarely will be like, no, there, there's a right or wrong answer on something like that. But it drives me crazy because I've read plenty of Batman stories where he's like, hmm, magic. Dude, you're on a team with Wonder Woman. She has a lasso of truth. She's an immortal from an island of magical Amazons who talk to the Greek gods. How can you not believe in the supernatural? Right there. Madam Cassandra, the, the tarot card reader, by the way, this is her only appearance in comics. She does, <laughs> she does appear in a novel, a Batman novel that Alan Grant wrote from a series of Justice League novels where each one spotlights a different member of the Justice League. The Batman one was called The Stone King and Grant wrote that. And I remember reading it and be like, wait, is that the same woman from that one Joker story? And I had to go back like, yeah. Yet is although she's not called Madame Cassandra in this story, she has no name, but it's clearly from the description the same character, which I thought was kind of a fun little thing for Grant to work in. While this is not a great story in general, I love Bray Fogel's art. His Batman is so fluid. The way he moves from panel to panel or the action scenes as he swings are gorgeous. And his Joker is really sinister they give the joker slightly long longer hair than i'm used to seeing on the joker and and features that are ever so slightly distorted that chin that juts out just beyond a normal physical dimension i thought that that was that was a nice uh, a nice uh little tidbit there and i will say to my eye this issue really picks up when the museum 
goes up in flames. Like that's when the art really does shift into another level. And it is nice to look at. I, you know, my, my qualms with the storytelling aside, this, the arts, the arts good here. Oh yeah. The point right when the Joker lights the fire around page 13, there's a scene where the Joker is in shadow and all you see are his eyes and his smile is disquieting in just the right way. There aren't a ton of Brayfogle Joker stories, so that might be another reason this one sticks in my head because he's one of my favorite Batman artists and he doesn't draw my favorite Batman villain that often. So it's a really cool thing. There's that bit, again, another one of those moments where Batman is pushing himself when he's underneath a fallen museum totem pole has to pull himself up as the fire lights the room is a very interesting visual. I'm not a big fan of how the, uh, the lettering switches for really no good reason. And as Batman is, is going over cultural uses of bats across the globe. It's that is a, that's a choice. That is a choice. <laughs> it's neat. I, I like having that information at hand, but it's not necessarily essential to this story. It would have been possibly more appropriate if this had been specifically an exhibit about bats. You'd think that Gotham museums would have a lot of exhibits about various bat themes. You'd bring in the people. Put some butts in seats. Yeah, and believe me, as someone who works in the arts, anything that gets butts in seats. I just work in the farts. <laughs> There's also a reference Joker addressing himself as a court jester, which is something that Scott Snyder will deeply delve into in his death of the family story. And generally, Snyder views Joker as this sort of court jester who gets to speak truth to power, power being Batman in this case. The other bit of art that I really like is right at the end, there's a two-page splash of Batman swinging into the Joker's car with a bat in the kind of super, not superimposed, but sort of misty in the background that looks gorgeous. It's again, it's a very Brayfogle spread because it's got that sense of motion that Brayfogle brings to everything and a somewhat shadowed Batman. Brayfogle's Batman is always partially in shadow, which is a nice touch. Shatash. Yes, a great sound effect. Shatash. Yeah, that uh, that spread is hella nice. Yes. One other thing that I appreciate about this story and is something that we will stop seeing in if this story is from 1990, probably in about 10 years. The Joker's stealing stuff here. He's in this for the crime of it. There's a certain point and there'll be a, a particular line in the final story we reference that brings this out the joker's still a crook here and i still appreciate a joker story where the joker is committing a crime and not just wantonly killing people and committing acts of terror not to say that you can't have stories where the joker does that i'm fine with that but every now and then i like it when the joker just wants to rob a bank or a museum he's still killing people here and it's still pretty arbitrary but tis madness, but there's a method in it. There's always a method in it. But in this particular story, he's at least saying that he has some reason to do it other than I want to kill folk. 
So I will say, I, I, I talked about the line that I hated. I will say the, the line that I really enjoyed in this. Ladies and gents, I'd like you to assist me in a symbolic redistribution of wealth by giving all your valuables to me. That, that's a, good. That's good. It's a great line. It's a line you can absolutely hear that Mark Hamill joker of Batman the Animated Series saying, or any number of other things. I mean, at this point, Mark Hamill has voiced the joker in many, many different places. To me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much more we have left. This is a much lighter story. There isn't that much to dig into on this one. And the next one, the next one will take some time. We're going to have some some stuff to dig into on that final story as we did on the first one. So shall we move forward to the next part of this and put this one on the list? It'd be time to put it on the bard. It's it's above speeding bullets. Yes, that's I'll start there. You're looking pretty much right where I was looking. I was looking above speeding bullets. I was trying to figure out where it stands with the story above speeding bullets. So at 13, we have Demons, the Batman Adventures Annual 2. That has art that isn't quite as good as this but it probably has a more A to B to C story. I think it might beat Demons. The question is, does it beat Last Chance, the dead man story from Batman Gotham Adventures number six? This is what happens when we, t- when we put two all-ages stories right next to each other. I can't separate those two in my brain. My ceiling is Blades. It's not as good as Blades because Blades gives us some interesting Batman character work. It has that great Tim Sale art. Remind me again about Demons. Demons is Etrigan and Rachel Ghoul. Rachel Ghoul steals a tablet to unleash a Jack Kirby demon. It has ah, that yes. weird dream sequence in the middle that was just Bruce Tim's yes. excuse to draw some Jack Kirby stuff. Yes. I like this probably better than that. I think I I definitely place it above that. The question is next with last chance, that's the origin of dead man retold in the animated Batman universe. It also has a framing narrative of dead man talking to the audience, but I think it's a more effective frame than clash of symbols. I like this art a little bit more, but the Rick Burchett art on Last Chance is still very strong. Last Chance does have some uncomfortable stuff with them still using those original Neil Adams, Arnold Drake, Neil Adams characters from the Dead Man story. But I'm not sure if that's as much of a failing as it could be if they were, let's say, creating those characters in the year 2000 as opposed to just sort of trying to stick to the theme of that book. So let's, uh, let's split this baby and uh, go right there in the middle. Yeah, I think we can put this in as our new number 13. A Clash of Symbols, Detective Comics, number 617. And now on to our final story. Our final story is... Our first encounter with a major force in Batman stories. This is The Clown at Midnight, Batman Volume 1, number 663, written by Grant Morrison, 
with art and colors by John Van Fleet, letters by Todd Klein, editors Elizabeth V. Gerline and Peter J. Tomasi. Cover date is April 2007. This story is not a traditional comic book. It is instead prose with accompanying spot illustrations by Van Fleet. In this story, the Joker, having been shot in the head by a Batman imposter, is at Arkham experiencing a fairly brutal recovery, while outside of Arkham, various previous Joker goons and associates are being murdered. Batman is attempting to stop this, while the Joker is slowly planning his metamorphosis into his next form, for want of a better word. Matt, we are 37 episodes in uh, to our project. As always, we could always spice it up a little bit. Let's time. Let's do some role play. I am DC editor in chief. I want you to pitch this book to me as the uh, the head of the uh, the Batman team. Your your group editor. Okay, I'm not I'm not Morrison, so I don't have to do the Scottish accent. Yeah, making okay. it easy for you. Okay, so. Grant came to me with an idea, a prose story with John Van Fleet doing painted illustrations throughout in this dripping noir homage in these stories, but with that usual high concept Grant Morrison madness throughout. Okay, I I heard a lot of stuff there, but I also heard prose. You want to do a prose story in our main Batman monthly. So you want to do like a, like a prose backup or, or, or what's, what's the deal here? The, the whole is full 22 pages of prose with spot illustrations. It's what Grant wants to do. Get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, this is, uh, this is weird. This is really, really weird for a monthly comic. And I, I love it. Now, before before we go any farther, I I do want to to be sure that we get on this get this on the table in case we fuck it up at any other point uh, through here. Grant Morrison, they them pronouns. So yes, let's let's do our best to get that right. I have that in my notes as well because it's a fairly recent change that they made. And how have you read the Morrison Batman run, Matt? You know I can't read. <laughs> and that's that's really what fucking pissed me off about this book. I'm just I'm just staring at all these fucking letters and I'm like, uh, I don't know what any of this stuff means. And I'm I'm looking at these pictures and I can't tell a story from any of these pictures and they've got this weird like, you know, lawnmower man look to them. So, uh, I mean, you you have to tell me what this issue is about. But no, I have not read any of the the Morrison Batman. Yeah, I kind of dropped you into the deep end on this one. My apologies. Arr, I'd be drowning out here. <laughs> this is fairly early in Morrison's run on the Batman ongoing. This falls after his first arc and before his second. Morrison's run on Batman began with a f- the four-part Batman and Son arc that introduced Damien. And then there's a four-part fill-in arc, and then Morrison's there through the end of his run. This 663 is a one-off before two-parter that really springboards into the madness of the Morrison run. But this is early in Morrison's central 
Batman canon. I want to pause here and go back to something you just said. Uh, Morrison introduced uh, Damien. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Well, see that that changes my whole take on this. I fucking hated it. <laughs> uh, we you know, we haven't read a Damien story yet, and I'm going to put it out here on the table now. I despise Damien Wayne. I think it is such an irritating fucking character. He is nothing more than Wesley Crusher with a bad attitude. And I hate him. I hate him, hate him, hate him. If there was ever like an option, like, hey, dial into this number to kill Damian Wayne, I would, I would spend days, days on the phone dialing up and murdering Damian Wayne. But uh, yeah, I did not know that. So I'm going to file the, that away and uh, hold it against them. Yeah, I mean, Morrison took the concept of Batman and Talia having a son from the Mike Barr, Jerry Bingham, Son of the Demon graphic novel. And from the Wade Alex Ross Kingdom Come, there have been Batman, Talia children in earlier stories. But Morrison introduces him with the name and brings him in as a pseudo Robin. He doesn't become Robin officially until Morrison's Batman and Robin, where he's Grayson's Robin. But nonetheless, Damien is not in this story. So we have a lot to discuss. This story has a lot of references to previous Joker stories. It has to consciously be responding to five-way revenge because, again, this is the Joker wiping out his hench folk. There's also a very direct reference to another Joker story that you haven't read, but we're going to get to it eventually, uh, The Killing Joke. Solomon and Sheba are characters that were in the killing joke. And that's why Gordon specifically says at one point, do you remember what these two did to me? They are part of the group. I did get that as a reference to killing joke. Yeah. yeah. They are part of the group that tortures Gordon in killing joke. This is also the only time Morrison writes Harley Quinn. Huh. And I think part of that is what the end of this story does. This is probably the last DC Universe Harley and Joker story in terms of the timeline. There are other stories of them as a couple, but they're all set before this story. This is the final breakup of the Joker and Harley Quinn in the DC Universe. Hmm. Interesting. The dialogue, well, the dialogue as well, but the narration in this book is right out of a pulp. It is so drippingly pulpy, but it's drippingly pulpy in a very self-conscious isn't the right word. It's not the word I'm looking for. Self-aware way, as opposed to when Frank Miller does it, where Miller really thinks he's writing a gritty noir which works okay in year one and less so in Dark Knight. This is Morrison very much writing every cliche of the noir playbook in this story. So I'll say that this was an interesting read, but it wasn't an easy read. This prose is dense, like really dense. And this was not a thing that 
you could just sort of breeze through like this, this required, I, it felt, it felt to me like it took, I don't know, 30 or 45 minutes to read. And I'm sure it wasn't that, but it certainly felt like that. And I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not prepared to say it was bad. Uh, visually, I think the, the palette is not, is not great. I think the, the artistic style is, is dated. It was, I think it was dated in 2007, but the, the prose, the prose is good. It's just not, it's not very fun. I'd say to read. And some things don't, they don't, you know, it doesn't always have to be fun. We are going to get to some of his works uh, eventually, but uh, yeah, I, I interviewed Dan Brereton years ago, occasional Batman writer, or maybe just wrote the one Batman thing, <laughs> occasional Batman artist. I think there might be one or two others, but he's written very few Batman stories. Yeah. And he's, he's an artist first. And I, he's got a quote that just, that is always in the back of my brain. He says, there are a bunch of failed novelists working as comic book writers. And I'm like, that's really kind of profound. It's, it's mean for all of the, uh, the Bendises of the world who love to fill their books with paragraphs upon paragraphs on the page. But I don't think Morrison did a bad job here. I think they, they wrote something that was really creative. And I appreciate the gumption it took to both propose and to actually go through with a prose comic, you know, in, uh, in your, your flagship monthly, like that's, that's insane. That is fucking nuts. Like I can't imagine DC or Marvel doing that now, especially because they seem to be taking everything so safe. Uh, and rarely you see somebody take this kind of a chance in a big two monthly. So I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the, the sheer nerve and hubris it took to do this, even as I am not so high on the end product. It's a huge swing. It is an absolutely huge swing. And I respect the hell out of them for trying and yeah, I don't. And the thing is with Morrison, I don't think Morrison's a failed novelist. I think Morrison likes writing comics. There's a lot of weird stuff with the Joker in this story. Morrison's concept of the Joker as having these super personas that he wakes up every day and bends his personality to respond to the world around him is fascinating as a concept. And it explains why the Joker is such a malleable character. And that the Joker specifically says that madness is his coping mechanism. It was the coping mechanism of when he came out of the tank of chemicals and was this now bleached monstrosity. The Joker's coping mechanism is chaos, which makes him stand perfectly against Batman, whose coping mechanism is forcing order upon a chaotic world. It's the best description I've ever seen of why Batman and the Joker are this pair. I want to go back to just sort of the setup for this. And not to disagree with anything that you just said, obviously you're right. A little bit more of the context here. Sure. So 
Joker's been shot, and you you said the, the the Batman imposter, and I thought that was a good a good part of this issue. Like Batman's like, how did you why why do you think I sh- did this? I don't I don't shoot people. Come on, was this Asriel is or is it some other imposter? Like what what's going on that 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 presages this? This is another imposter. Central to the Morrison run is an experiment by a group of villains, by a specific villain called Dr. Hurt, who creates these pseudo-Batman. He's trying to sort of recreate a Batman. And so he's fucked with the heads of various people to try to make another Batman. And one of them winds up shooting the Joker in the this opening story. And they be, come back in the next arc, the, the next two issues of this run, Batman 664 and 665. And Dr. Hurt is the central villain of the initial Morrison run. He's a, without, it won't be a spoiler for the many of the people listening. Do you want me to kind of spoil a little bit of the Morrison run for you on this? Go for it. I, I'm already down on the Morrison run, so, so go for it. Simon Hurt is actually an immortal, an ancestor of Bruce Wayne's who made a deal with a demonic force that spins out of Darkseid. It all ties into the final crisis and Darkseid and Bruce Wayne. And he's this weird central figure to this run. It's, it's fascinating stuff, but it's, it's a trip. The Morrison run is really interesting in that you get a couple of really straightforward arcs. That first arc, Batman and Son, the Club of Heroes arc is very straightforward. And then you get stuff like Batman R.I.P., which is a trip. It, it requires multiple readings of some of this stuff to pick up all the stuff that Morrison is laying down. We're, we'll get to it. And I, I feel like I've almost really done you a disservice of giving it to you out of order. But this one stands fairly well on its own. This isn't as much a part of that central arc. The thing that it does introduce that does become important throughout is that motif of black and red that is mentioned and used over and over again in this. The is flowers. something The flowers, Harley's costume, is something that shows up with the Joker and with this villainous group that Dr. Hurt is a part of, the Black Glove, throughout the Morrison run. While the art is not necessarily always to my taste, there is one bit where the art absolutely bugs the crap out of me. Uh And that is on the digital page seven. It's probably different... Is at least the way DC Universe does it is it puts the two-page spreads since they're all two-page spreads as ones. But there's one page where Harley is moving across the panel and her body actually breaks a paragraph and you have to read around her body. And it just was jarring in the way of the text. Yeah, it's not good layout. If you're, if you're on Comixology, it's uh, page eight. I will also say Harley does get the the one line that I just I absolutely got a complete chuckle out of, which was I have a doctorate and I can kick your ass. Oh, Harley, never change. 
except do change because you should not be with the Joker. And I'm glad you got away from him. If we can say that this is the story that really separates the Joker and Harley as a couple, if that's something that Morrison contributes, I will give them a ton of credit because I think Harley is a much better character as the person dealing with the trauma of this broken relationship and coming out of it stronger than as the Joker's codependent hench girl. I've always found it very uncomfortable when there are people who look at the Joker and Harley relationship and are like, isn't this relationship great? No, it's not. Yeah, this people is- are people are weird. And that's that's one of my the thing about the internet that, that that just amuses me the most. There are stands and there are fans and there are people who appreciate everything. Even even the most wretched things in the world, somebody's going to stand up and say, "Oh, oh, that's my shit. I like that." And sometimes that's totally fine. But as we remarked last time, when you crawl up in my Twitter feed and say that you think Dark Knight Strikes Back is like the best story ever, I'm like what the what the fuck is wrong with you i mean seriously like what the fuck you have to understand it doesn't matter that that was the first story that you read or that you just think it's cool you have to appreciate it ain't great liking something is not the same as it being good yes there are plenty of stories that i like there are plenty of movies that i like that i know are not good movies that are not good comics that are not good books that's an important distinction and it is something that people should realize and while i generally speaking will never say that someone's opinion is wrong thinking that the joker and harley quinn have a good relationship they do not Mm -mm. he is an abusive monster to her and not just here where he decides to kill her in the end he attempts to kill her on numerous occasions before this because it's fun right he revels in the power that he has over her like like any abuser right and this is not a healthy dom sub relationship because he does not respect that after dark Yeah, you can have a relationship where there is that one pseudo one-way power dynamic. But in those relationships, the sub always has a safe word. The sub can always stop it when they want to. They have the power, absolutely. And those relationships are built on informed consent. And Harley does not have that here. Harley never has that. The Joker at any moment can just kill her. Because he feels like it. One line that I really liked in this that just sort of explains Joker's relationship with not just Harley, but with with all of his his hench people. Uh, Very first page from Bozo, uh, Bozo? That's got to be Bozo, right? I think so. Yeah. Bozo the bandit. Quote, y'all got to keep him laughing, boys. Because when the laughing stops, the genocide starts. And the genocide starts with you. That's some good shit right there. That's some good shit. Morrison gets the Joker. They especially get their version of the Joker. But because Morrison has this grand unified theory of Batman that 
every story happens. So Batman went through these weird periods of crazy sci-fi stuff. All of those Jokers are a valid Joker and the Joker has evolved through them. So let me give you a question. Mm -hmm. So I cover Department of Truth with our, our good friend Forrest. And they made the point and in covering, uh, I think it was either Department of Truth or Nice House in the Lake. Tinian? Tinian. Tinian. I, I only Tinian. realized it because his newsletter is, his company's Tiny Onion. So it's Tinian. Tinian. Tinian did some things where he incorporated some prose and like different, like almost like a found footage kind of approach in both of those books. And Forrest made the point that was like, you know, I like this stuff. I think this stuff is neat, but only when we couldn't have gotten it in a conventional comic book form. If only this other stuff tells a story better. And so I'll, I'll phrase that to you with this. Could we have gotten this story in a traditional comic form? There was a long pause there that I will probably edit out because you all don't need to hear the dead air. I'm mentioning it because I want that long pause to be considered in my response because that is an excellent question. I think we could have gotten a Department of Truth-esque thing here where there are some traditional comic pages and some prose or text pages. The one particular chapter that exists inside the Joker's mind where the mosquito is biting him and dying from his poisonous blood, which is a kind of great and creepy touch. The amount of narration that would be required for that page would have gummed up the art so much. And in that chapter, there's really not a wasted word. Not that there's wasted words in the rest of this, but there's not a lot of narration that's moving physical bodies. It's all about what's going on in the Joker's head. That wouldn't have worked in a traditional comic page. And what would you have really done? Focused on the mosquito? Because the Joker himself isn't moving. Some of this absolutely works because it's prose. I think some of it could have been done as comics, that opening funeral the final sequence of the Joker fleeing Batman and Harley's fight. But this is an experiment. This is Morrison playing with form. And so I respect their decision to do the whole thing as prose. Making it all prose means that you're immersed in this story in that format. I think... The, the two chapters that are probably the highlights for me are the first one, which I think probably could have done well as a traditional comic, especially the scene where the clowns drop the casket and, you know, it, it falls on them. They, you know, cough up their guts and die. But just to highlight how good the, the chapter that you mentioned, you know, just J Joker just thinking. Um, he thinks of a list of things that make him laugh. And I'll, I'll read some of them off. Blind babies, landmines, AIDS, which that's, eh, that, that, that note is a little sour. We don't have to, I don't think we have to go there. Beloved pets in bad road accidents, 
statistics, pencil cases, brunch, the periodic table of the elements, geniuses suffering irreversible brain damage, real bad news, shattered faith, sombreros, politics, fish being gutted, fish being gutted, fish being gutted, bowel cancer, fish being gutted, Mr. Ed, guns and schools, one that I will admit because it's a slur for the handicapped, racism, Alzheimer's, Batman, Batman. <laughs> that, that's, that's fun. That's fun. Even that some of that hasn't aged all that well. Morrison writes a particularly creepy Joker. He also addresses him in this story as the clown prince of cruelty, not the crown, clown prince of crime, which is how that phrase usually is. The Clown Prince of Cruelty sets us on the path of the Joker that we have now. The anarchist, the terrorist, the unrepentant murderer who kills for no other reason than he likes to kill. The Joker did that every now and then before this, too. One of my favorite Joker stories, Soft Targets from Gotham Central. The Joker isn't trying to do anything there other than kill a bunch of people because he thinks it's funny but we haven't gotten a joker story since morrison of the joker being anything other than an agent of chaos this does predate the dark knight as well which is another thing that absolutely influenced the joker as the agent of chaos and the terrorist morrison's vision and the dark knight pretty much leave us with a joker who doesn't commit crimes anymore And the crimes that the Joker commits in The Dark Knight are just there for the chaos of them. He's not stealing that money in The Dark Knight because it's a crime. He's doing it because he wants to throw the mob into chaos. Granted, I think a lot of what the Joker did before this was also committing crimes for the reason that he likes to screw with society. But he also liked to buy stuff back then. (laughs) No, he doesn't. Now he just steals it. You know, comparing, I think, all of these stories to uh, to Joker War, and man, I am just real down on that because there's nothing interesting about this. Like, it was just one more battle for Gotham, this existential crisis to Gotham. And all of these stories tonight have been much smaller and much more interesting about Joker as a weirdo, Joker as a murderer, Joker as this chaotic force who has really more interesting plans than just control of a city. Like, how fucking boring is that? Yep. I don't have a lot more to add to that particular beat. A couple final notes, I think. This is a time where the Joker does flat out address Batman as the straight man to his joke. And what's fun about telling a joke if you don't have somebody to play it off, which follows up again on that concept that was in five-way revenge and has moved forward in a lot of Joker stories. This is also one of the earliest stories. This is a story where Morrison pretty much flat out says the Joker knows Batman's identity. He specifically says at one point about, you know, an orphan you know, crying over his dead parents. The Joker knows, but the Joker doesn't care. 
Joker says exactly that in Morrison's first real Batman story, Arkham Asylum, where the others, other Arkham inmates are trying to unmask Batman while he's in the asylum. And the Joker tells them, don't. Our fight isn't with the man under the mask. Our fight is with the bat. And I think that's a big part of Joker's psychosis. He doesn't give a crap about Bruce Wayne. There's a line in Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, the animated Batman Beyond direct to VHS slash DVD feature, where there the Joker discovers Batman's identity and is disappointed because all you are is a little boy crying for mommy and daddy. Bruce Wayne doesn't matter. Batman is a force, and that's what the Joker cares about. I think Batman's world is much more interesting when both uh, Joker and Gordon know who's under the mask. I think it's an, an injustice where Tom Taylor like spells it out. Like I think toward the end when Gordon is dying, and, and Taylor might have been off the book at that point, but Gordon is dying and he basically says, yeah, don't insult my intelligence. I know that you are, you know, Bruce Wayne. Which book? I could just be making that up, but I, I feel like I read that. Which book? Uh, Injustice. Oh, okay. Ah, it was, ah, I read that as it, it was an injustice, but it's, no, in, <laughs> okay. So I've read all the injustice stuff. So I, it's something that we'll eventually get to in the podcast and I will read some of it then, but the stuff that I haven't read, but yeah. Okay. It's amazing. Words, words, folks, words have meanings and sometimes they're not the same. I think we've, we could discuss this forever. There are annotations about Morrison's run. There's a ton of annotations about this story because of how dense it is, but we're running long on this episode anyway. So I think it's time for us to move over and put this one on the old list. Shall we? Time to put it on the board! Okay. This is a tough one. This is. This is big swing territory. This is higher than our other big swing, which was Batman Holy Terror, because this one lands better than Holy Terror. It sure does. It's above Clash of Symbols. It's above the last, the most, the other issue, the second issue we did in this one. I'll grant that. Where do we feel about it in relation to Zero Year? Zero Year is a big swing in a different way. Zero Year is a lot of material. And looking back at Batman's first year, which has been told in numerous different iterations over time, is this more successful than Zero Year? It's comparing a one-issue prose story to 12 issues of comics. So there there's always going to be some apples and oranges with this particular story. I think to me, I, I want to discount it just a little bit because of the art and the layout. Like I, aside from the first page, you know, the first page, the clowns in the graveyard, none of the rest of it really to me serves the story or represents anything that is just for lack of a better descriptor pretty to look at the rest of it is busy again the layouts uh, you pointed out are, are clunky and it's intentionally disquieting which can absolutely work for art but this is intentionally disquieting can also be 
good to look at. And a lot of this is not good to look at. Yeah, I think it would have been better served if you had fewer spot illustrations and that they had been larger. So to me, I don't think the art works. And if it's going to be a comic book and you're going to put art in the comic book, the art's got to friggin' work. Okay. So not zero year. As much as I love blades, I still think this, this is a big swing and it story-wise is very successful while blades has its failings in its storytelling at places. So I think it doesn't beat zero year, but it does beat blades and thus is our new number 11. Works for me outside the top 10 looking on the outside, looking in. Yep. I'm on the outside. <laughs> so the clown at midnight, Batman number 663 is now number 11 on our list. And so I think we have reached the end of another episode. <sighs> 21 stories on the big board. My goodness. Yep. We are moving. Blackjack. <laughs> and Red King. Black and red. Interesting. So, yep. We, we will get to another Morrison story that actually uses the black and red in solitaire. Cards are a, a Joker theme. Now, so that wraps up this week. Next week. We have three stories that approach an uncommon theme in very different ways. Batman loses. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and my cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013 and Will at... At Will Nevin, where I'm going to be talking a whole lot about my new-to-me butthole and how much I'm enjoying it. <laughs> and be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, and for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Good old Dan Greet. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.